When you think of school projects, you probably imagine dioramas and posters that students made, or their parents made, to show what the students learned. That's not anything like the project-based learning we're going to talk about on today's show. Today, we're going to talk with a teacher who's using PBL to empower students to take control of their own learning. And welcome to episode 24 of the Education for a Better World podcast. I'm Mike Soskal. And I'm Diane Smokorowski. Each week, we will bring you conversations with some of the most dynamic thought leaders in education. This week's episode is sponsored by GoToScience, a tool that allows our youngest learners the opportunity to learn by going on adventures without leaving their classroom. We know that education will be the driving force for a bright, optimistic future. On each show, We'll introduce you to innovative ideas, we'll stretch your thinking, and help you see ways to empower students to affect positive change in the world. We are thrilled that you are coming along with us on this journey. Let's dream big. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to remind you that Diane and I are leading a teacher adventure to Kenya in June of 2020, and we want you to come along with us. We're going to be going on safari, visiting some incredible schools, joining a conference with some of the world's most amazing teachers, and you can join us by going to bookbagtours.com. We hope to see you there. Tina Schuster has been a classroom teacher at the secondary level for the past 17 years in Namibia, Virginia, the Dominican Republic, and for the past 10 years at High Tech High in San Diego. This year, she's in the role of the professional learning coordinator, which means that she works with educators who come to visit high tech high schools and plan conferences, host workshops, and lead other professional learning experiences. High Tech High is a network of project-based learning schools in San Diego that was recently featured in the movie, Most Likely to Succeed. Tina, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about High Tech High? Yeah, so High Tech High is a network of charter schools in San Diego. Right now there's 14 schools and next year we're going to have 16. Um, and so elementary, middle, and high school. And we are all wall-to-wall project-based learning. Um, we also have like a really, I think, really interesting way of how students come to us. The goal is High Tech High was started as an equity project. And so um, the two founders, Larry Rosenstock and Rob Reardon, um, back in like 1999 or 2000, were um, working in Boston and they were looking for a place that they could start. Like, uh, they weren't sure what it was, how many schools it was going to be at that time. At that time, it was just one school. Um, where we could sort of break this model of housing segregation. So like in a lot of, you know, areas like because there's segregation within housing, which then also often correlates with race and economics, like there are, you know, well-resourced schools and then under-resourced schools. And so there's just this like large issue of, um, of segregation. And so what they decided to do was that we have an academically blind zip code based lottery. And so what that means is that if 2% of the students live in zip code 92106, 2% of our students come to us from that zip code. Um, and the only, the only advantage that any student is given is there's a, a statistical advantage given to students whose families qualify for free or reduced lunch. And so the idea behind that is that all of the schools, the, the students coming to us are a real representation of the surrounding community in which we exist. Um, 
So as a result, we don't receive local funding. We receive state and federal funding. Um, we are a full public charter school, but we also don't track students. All of our students are all applying to college. All of our students are being supported like throughout their experience starting in kindergarten to be able to be qualified to apply for a public university in, um, in California. And a lot of students go outside of California as well. So high tech high is just for me when I came here, it was like, this is how I felt like schools could really represent their community. Um, I also had gone to very segregated schools in Richmond, Virginia, which is where I grew up. Um, and so it's always been something that I've, I've thought about and I uh, hadn't actually seen a model like this um, where students are truly integrated and also subjects are really integrated. So like um, you may be in a humanities class, which is, you know, English and social studies and partnered with a math and science teacher. So those like two people would teach four subjects, but those subjects are kind of blurry. Like it's not like, you know, when you leave a school, it's not like you're only like talking about science or thinking about science, like in the in world outside of school, everything is really integrated by subject. And so a lot of the projects are also integrated in that way as well. You uh, mentioned the last time that you and I visited, you had said that teaching here at High Tech High gave you a new resurgence of wanting mm -hmm. to teach. Yeah. Tell me about a day in the life of a teacher at High Tech High. Oh man, it's so fun and there is no like typical day, but um, yeah, I, I felt like, so before at I, before I was in high tech high, I taught for eight years in different school settings. I taught in like a large comprehensive high school. I taught in a, in a real rural school in Namibia in Southern Africa. I taught um, for three years in a private school in, the, in Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic. And I loved kids and I loved teaching, but I, I felt like I kept just sort of losing inspiration and I thought like oh I should move that's what this means I just need to like try another place like because you know it's my fear that I'm going to burn out as a teacher as an educator um, and so when I got here I was I just I think I was struck by the amount of autonomy that teachers have in determining um, what decisions they're making like for students I think that like there's always so like the, the best advice I got when I got here was from one of my directors and I was like, well, I'm not sure like what I should be teaching. What if I don't cover all of this or it's not fitting into a project? And, and she said, just guide all of your decisions around one question, which is what's best for kids. And to have that like freedom given to me by someone in school leadership, I, it just like opened up all of these possibilities. And so I was like, oh, okay. Like I can, stray away from what I have normally done, like, as far as, like, how I'm teaching, um, and so, like, I'll just, like, say a normal day for me could include, um, it starts with some sort of, like, professional learning time before school, so students start at 8.30 at the high school that I've been working at, and teachers come at 7.30, and so we have some sort of, like, professional collaboration time, which could just be your partner teachers, it could be like a whole staff professional development internally led. There's just like lots of options, but I used to, well, I, I used to sort of hate going to staff meetings. Um, I feel weird saying that because I, I love teaching and I, I love students and I always loved the staff I worked with, but there was something about like when we were getting together for this deliberate time. When I came to High Tech High, I, I started looking forward to those staff meetings because it was like, 
real authentic collaboration. It was time we needed, but it was just like great to connect with people that were super inspired in the same way. Um, and I loved that that's how our days would, that's how our days start. And then we don't have any bells. So we don't have like, we, we have a group of students that stay with us all day on a team of like three teachers. So, you know, the needs of the project kind of dictate what the schedule looks like. So we might have a day where all three of the teachers on the team decide that we're going to be doing field work. And so, we're, you know, we're leaving the school and this is not something that we just decide that day. It would be something where we'd have permission slips and everything you know, ahead of time. But, um, and so that whole day might be spent um, doing field work. Or we could say like, hey, let's open the walls today because the classrooms are connected. Um, and let's have the whole team working on, we're gonna have a class discussion. I think it would be great if like the whole team's there so we're not doing that in like separate periods. So that's like an option. Um, or, or we could stay in like three separate classes and the students kind of rotate through on whatever like timing works that day. I never feel like, I, I read this thing that said like you're in your, you know you're in your like perfect spot when you don't notice that time is passing. And I feel like, like almost every day I like am really surprised when it's like time to leave. I used to think, oh, I have a two hour time block. How am I going to fill that? And now this new way, it was a new way of thinking for me of this just like being in my happy space every time I would come to work. But also a lot of the projects that the students give feedback on, but the teachers also, um, they really, I think because the work is really important and I feel like almost all of my projects are in some way providing like a service to the world. I feel like the work feels important. The work feels authentic. And so I never feel like there's like wasted time. You mentioned that the entire school is driven by PBL. And that is a term that is, has almost become overused to the point mm, where it's, yeah. it's tough for people to really understand what that yes. means. And mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit about the difference between traditionally like doing projects in school, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, project-based learning and problem-based learning and how you see them as different? Yeah. Um, well, let me first tell you how I had like the, the shift that had to happen in my brain to, help me really get my head around what project-based learning is. Because even, um, you know, I came to High Tech High 10 years ago, but I had missed, I got hired after the school year had started. So I got hired kind of um, as a, I got hired as a paternity leave coverage sub. And so I had missed the like three weeks of new teacher training that normally precedes a school year. And so I was like, oh, I've been teaching eight years. I know what a project is. Like, I'm sure I've done projects. And so I kind of came in and then I, I looked around and I was like, this is really different than what I thought. And I don't really know how to do this. So it was, it was for me, it was just this, like, I kind of got, I felt sort of knocked down. Like, oh man, how do I do all of this work that I see people doing? And I think, I think that over the course of the year, I had a, a bunch of aha moments, but the big thing was that I had to start thinking about instruction. I, I used to think of instruction in terms of like chunks of units of study. So as a social studies teacher, I might teach a unit or on the constitutional, like the, the creation of the U.S. Constitution. And that was usually like a, you know, maybe a two week amount of time. There was usually some lecture. 
um, and, and it would almost always culminate with some sort of test. And that's where that information like lived and died was in that classroom and that unit of study. And I had, I had also gone to school in that model, so it made a lot of sense to me. But then I came to high tech high and I was trying to like reinvent, like what is my schema now? How am I like understanding school? And what I realized is that like a lot of the things that you might do in a traditional classroom, such as like maybe you do give a lecture or maybe um, you have a class discussion, still can happen in project-based learning, but it's to a different purpose. So like the end is, it, you're working towards something that has an audience outside of the classroom so that the work the learning doesn't like just live and die within that classroom and so um, thinking about who is the audience for this work this will culminate in some sort of like public exhibition of the students sharing their work and then that the rest of it kind of fit in from that so for let me give you an example so like one of the projects that um, I recently did with my partners was we were, we decided that the, uh, the outcome of the whole project was that we wanted to make virtual reality films that were going to change a behavior. Um, and we wanted to exhibit an Earth Day festival. So we decided that the behavior, after like talking with students and also talking with each other, that we were gonna try to change was convince a citizen to just waste one less thing in their life. So that might be like, they're going to not have a, you know, when they go to Starbucks, they're gonna have a plastic cup that's reusable instead of just like a paper cup. So we knew that this whole project was going to culminate with this event where we were going to be interacting with people in the public and trying to change a behavior. So from that then, we had to think about what are all of the things that have to be learned? Where do we have to explore all, all of this to get to this end? So like, as I was previously seeing school in units of study culminating with a test, now I'm seeing a project culminating with an, an action or an outcome that we're hoping um, for. And so as a humanities teacher, which is government and English at that grade level, I was teaching grade 12, you know, I had to think about like, so what are all the things that are gonna to need to be understood to be able to have this outcome? And so, you know, we looked at federal and local policy, we looked at whose responsibility is the environment, we looked at budgeting, we looked at rhetorical writing, which is, you know, like persuasive writing, how you convince somebody of something. We read a book that broke down like why some ideas are successful and some, and some don't survive. Um, and so though all of those things, like previously my students were reading books, previously my students were like understanding federal, state, local policy, like, but there was an artificial purpose to it. Previously it was like the purpose was, and now you're gonna take a test that the teacher will see and that's gonna translate into a grade. But now it's like, you're gonna have to learn all this so that we can figure out how we can convince somebody to change a behavior, and then we need to collect data around it to see if we we're successful. And by the way, you have a real audience, and it's not me. So, like, I may be—I'll see your work, and I can help you like grow in your work. But like, your ultimate audience is someone outside me. Um, and so that shift—I had to make that shift in my head and away from units of study um, to 
it could be any unit of study that is mixed in together because it has a different end, which is not a test. I'd like to take a second to tell you about our sponsor, GoToScience. GoToScience is a pre-K through second grade tool that allows students to learn all aspects of the curriculum through scientific inquiry. Each month, we give away a free one-year subscription. To win this month, tag us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at ed, the number four, better world, and share your favorite quote from one of our episodes. It's that simple. We will choose one of those quotes and contact you and give you a free one-year subscription to GoToScience. I'd also like to remind you that Diane and I are available to come and work with your teachers, either in your school district or at your conference. To send us an inquiry, simply drop us a line on our website at ed4betterworld.com. Now let's get back to the show. One of the misconceptions that even I had mm-hmm. before I did research on High Sec High is I thought it was just one building and it was a high school, but you have pre-K and elementary and middle school. Can you kind of <laughs> give us a tour of the yeah. entire um, setup? Yes. So we have, like I mentioned, we have a network of 14 schools. We're going to have 16 next year and they're spread out on four separate campuses. So they're all within like, they're all within the San Diego area. Um, We have a campus on Chula Vista, which is about five miles north of the U.S.-Mexico border. And there's a K-12 there. So we have an elementary, a middle, and a high school. Then we have our Point Loma campus, which was our original campus, and there's seven schools at Point Loma. So there's two elementary schools, two middle schools, and three high schools. We have our newest campus is in Claremont Mesa, which is in San Diego. Um, Right now just has a ninth grade, but adding um, elementary and middle next year, and they're adding like a grade each year. And then our North County campus, which is where I've called home for the last nine years, has been, uh, is a K-12 also, so an elementary, middle, and high school. And so all of the schools are designed to be small schools, but operating under the same um, policy of like project-based learning. And so we do collaborate among schools, but more frequently we collaborate among what we call our villages, which are like the different campuses. I want to I want to go back for a second mm-hmm. um, and dig into your PBL answer just a little bit. You yeah, did a, you did a great job of of telling us about the shift in mindset for what happens when a project is going on and helping kids learn. Mm -hmm. But one of the questions that I often get from teachers is how do you make sure that all of the standards are being met when Mm -hmm. you're giving that much control over to students? Can you talk a little bit about how you choose the projects intentionally Mm -hmm. to make sure that the standards are going to be built in, that the kids are going to have to learn the right things while they're, while they're meeting those projects? Right. So I get that question a lot. This year I'm actually in a, a role outside of the classroom where um, we have visitors coming to our campus for like different events or conferences. And so I work with educators from all over the world, um, just sort of exploring that. And that is probably the question that I get more than any other question. Well, that and how do you grade? Those are like the two things that I get. You can answer that too, by the way. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> so what I say about the first question is, our standards that we use are, we use Common Core standards, and Common Core and project-based learning, like, go really well together. Like, you know, it's, I had come from um, a system where the test was more content-specific, 
like what was the turning point of the Civil War and they had to know that it happened in like 1863 and it wasn't you know and so I think that Common Core because a lot of it is skills based it works really well with PBL. Um, one thing that we are really aware of and that we're constantly working on improving is uh, is literacy across all of our subjects um, and uh, we're trying to get rid of the idea that people say like I'm not a math person that there is no such thing as like a math person or a history person or um, and so we do a lot of intentional work around math and um, leveling the playing field for a lot of students that maybe have different like backgrounds coming in or different levels of um, where they could access the material um, and so I think that like I have never once been worried about meeting the standards as common core um, I look at them and I think like yeah that's a great one that like students should be writing persuasively but it doesn't say specifically what they have to be like convincing somebody of so I think that they actually work pretty easily um, I have thought a lot about if I ever moved to a state or a country that had like really specific content based standards, how, how would I make sure that like those were being met? Um, and I think that that would be a little bit harder because we go into like depth, not necessarily breadth. So we're not, we're not hitting like everything that, because a lot of times, you know, what is the point of memorizing something that a student could look up on their cell phone, you know, but but if we're teaching like literacy skills or like how, how do you figure out what a good resource is or how do you discriminate between like a lot of different like biases you might see in a media source like I think that that skill will help students if they need to have any of that recall information, but I wonder like states or countries that haven't quite moved away from that yet, I think are going to eventually do that but they're not quite there yet so like how would that work with project-based learning could maybe be like I've thought about <laughs> printing standards putting them on the wall and after you hit something in a project check it off you know or like some real intentional test review a few weeks before a test because often it's it's learning how to actually take a test not necessarily like it's it's, it's like memorizing information that and then you have to learn how to take that test so um, but for me Common Core standards have always been like no problem and like a no-brainer to fit um, with PBL. And then the other question around um, grades. So the way I think of that, that was another like undoing sort of a mind shift. You know, like up until I came here, all of my assessment was summative. So everything, if I couldn't quantify it, I wouldn't grade it. And if I wasn't grading it, then it almost wasn't important. So I... I ended up um, seeing like, well, in projects, you know, you might be doing four drafts of something. And so if we're going through like multiple iterations, I don't have to be grading all of those, first of all. And like for a student to receive critique or feedback, it's actually more valuable if they're like looking at each other's work or they're receiving feedback from like an, somebody outside of me. And I realized it was actually really freeing when also one of my school leaders said like, like, why are you trying to grade everything like with a summative grade, you know? And so I made, I would say that I'm now, I've made a shift to about 
70 or 80% of my like assessment is formative. And that could translate into a number, but it's not necessarily like, oh, you got an eight out of 10 for that content, but it might be like, you get a 10 out of 10 for completing this assignment and turning in a first draft and receiving critique. And then it looks like you heard, you heard the feedback and you've made changes. So you've met the requirements for the second draft. Um, I think that usually now my like 20 or 30% that might be summative is never ever the first or second draft of anything. Like if something's gonna be summative, students need to have been given the opportunity to show that they have like quote unquote and I don't like this phrase but like mastered the content and they need to be given and some students might need like eight opportunities eight drafts to get to that point and some might get to it at like draft three and so it's like being aware of how our students growing building on that and then if I have to you know giving a summative grade because colleges still need grades, you know, and so there's, we don't want to do a disservice to kids, but um, for me, my shift, my, my thinking has shifted to like mostly formative grading. Um, and I've just seen in the classroom, like the confidence of kids, it's just like through the roof. I mean, kids are constantly surprising me because they are they feel like by putting themselves out there with work and taking a risk and being vulnerable, they're not going to be shot down. They're not going to be told like, oh, you didn't master this. So like we're moving on and you get a zero, you know, and it's, it, you just see like, I'm just constantly surprised, I guess, at unexpected like results of kids. It's really, it's really cool. Well, one of the summatives that, High Tech High does is a public performance piece on your exhibition nights. Um, this is something that a lot of other schools are paying attention to. Can you explain a little bit about what exhibition is and how that helps kids? Yeah, so, and actually there's um, a website that is, it's through our, it's through our High Tech High Graduate School of Education, but um, it's called, it's shareyourlearning.org. And on that, there, we're part of a, a movement that, I mean, we, are trying to create a movement to in three years have five million students publicly exhibiting their work or sharing their work. And so if you go to that website, there's resources on like those three particular methods, one of which is like a public exhibition at the end of a project or at some phase of the project. Um, and then the two other ways are presentations of learning, which happen at the end of a semester starting in kindergarten where students are reflecting on their learning and their growth. Um, and the other, the other um, way that's on that website is a student-led conferences. So it kind of flips like a parent-teacher conference on its head. And instead of the parents coming in and talking to the teacher about a student, it's the students talking to their parent and teacher about their learning. And it seems like a, a simple switch, but it is to, to be, I don't, I, like I think often, like when was the first time I really articulated and understood how I learned? And I feel like that might maybe happened in college. Like I don't know when I thought so deeply about how am I learning and what am I learning um, in my school experience. But you know, we've got kindergartners leading a student-led conference with their parents and their teacher. And it's just like, I mean, 
I've been teaching here for 10 years and inevitably every year during student-led conferences, I like tear up and then I try to like be like, oh no, 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 I just, I must have allergies. You know, it's like, cause like, why am I, I it's just like such an emotional and beautiful thing to see a student just articulating like how and why, you know, what, what are they getting out of school? And um, so, but the exhibitions, there's different types of exhibitions. So there's like this, schools will have a school-wide exhibition which is where a date is put on the calendar. Um, all of the students are exhibiting something. It could be like a process exhibition. So it could be at some phase that's not the final phase of a project where they're talking about what they've learned so far. It could be a, a final, um, it could be the end of a project. And a project doesn't always have to have a tangible item. So it could be a performance. Like I once did a, um, we did Thursday Night Live, which was like, um, it was like Saturday Night Live, but students wrote political skits and then they performed them. And so, you know, that was like a little, a, a two or three week project and we coupled it with political cartoons and it was just kind of like, let's laugh. And, um, but that was an experience and parents were like, they came up to me that night and they said, this has been so great. Like we loved, we loved like the performance part of this. Cause a lot of times like a, an exhibition could be just like, they'll go hear from a couple kids, they'll hear from their son or daughter and then they'll you know, maybe go check out another one, but like having it as this like performance, they really like that. I think of those exhibitions almost as like a showcase. And then throughout the year, there's exhibitions that happen on a, um, le that's not on a school-wide schedule. So like we did one project where we were trying to increase the voter turnout on our local college campuses. So at Cal State San Marcos, which is the closest four-year university in in the most recent election at that time, the voting turnout was 8%. And so the students, these were 12th graders, and they like are, I guess the goal of our project was that we were gonna increase voter turnout. And so they did a bunch of things. They, they interviewed, they talked to college students. We looked at like what research has said. We partnered with Rock the Vote. There were all sorts of like things into looking at voter apathy and youth apathy towards voting. But our exhibition was what they decided, the students decided this, was the day before election day, they were on the college campus. And um, one of the things they found in their research is that often college kids don't know if they're registered to vote and where they're, how, they just didn't know how to vote. Like, which was really interesting to me because I thought like, well, actually that's true. Like a lot of high school seniors get registered in high school and then that's like the last they hear of it. And then they go, they might move away to college. And so their voting material gets sent home or, you know, so it was like something simple like that. And so like one group was, um, they're just looking up cause you can publicly look up, like, are you registered and where do you go vote? Um, and so that was like a service they were providing, but then other students had a theory that people don't vote because they didn't, there's nothing on the ballot that necessarily pulls them to it thinking like my vote my vote doesn't matter so they were um we had tables set up where we were told by the student government that, at that college campus that if we had free food we'd get people to come over to us so we had ice cream floats to rock the vote and they basically um we had a list of all the different propositions on the ballot and then they got to pick which one um, they wanted to hear about and so the students then were presenting like hey this is this proposition and this is why this might be important to you or this is how you can connect it but they had also learned all about like all of them so that if anybody asked any question 
they could, you know, let them know about that proposition. So like that was an exhibition where, I mean, some parents came because parents were interested in learning about the, the ballot as well. Um, but it was, it was timed before the election day. So that like, if we had had the whole school exhibiting on December and we needed to exhibit before exhibition, uh, before election day, then, you know, we're going to have a different time than the rest of the school. And so a lot of the other ones outside the school exhibition are um, geared towards when is a natural end date or like the other project I had talked about with the convincing people to waste less. We had, it was on earth day at a festival in San Diego. So we already had like a date that we had to stick to. And I actually like those hard end dates because projects can, I mean, we, we often say like we're building the plane while we're flying it and projects can, I mean, there's so many just like detours, really rich, awesome detours that you can take. And if you don't, it's nice to have a hard end date. So you can be like, all right, cool. That's good. We're done. And we're going to try something. And now we're going to start something else, you know? You mentioned before that this was a, a really uh, eye-opening transition for you when you first came to High Tech High. What is it like for students that come in here from a more traditional setting? <laughs> you know, that is, uh, there's so many ways I could answer that. I think, I think students are usually surprised at the amount of, um, amount of, freedom's not the right word, but I guess it is like the, the amount of intellectual freedom that they have. Um, and um, how students talk to adults, it, it almost seems like it's like we're colleagues. And I think that that I see a lot of students when they come in are kind of like, it's like they watch as like outsiders because they haven't been used to that model where like, like I had a student once my first year here who said to me like, hey, this project working for you? And I was like, you know what? It's not really. And she was like, what should we do about it? Do you want to continue it? Should we try to change it? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. Let's ask the class. And like that, you know, that's like a really typical high tech high move. Like for a student was to give the teacher feedback to ask a question and then kind of like grapple with it together. And it was not a good project. And I'm really glad she said something because I would have just plowed ahead and been like, oh yeah we're just gonna suffer through this together but so i think that i think students are often but they really quickly adjust they really quickly adjust to like because they see like oh this is what my peers are doing and this is how um adults and and students interact and and they just like it's very quick how it happens i mean one thing that we've heard as feedback from alumni we asked them like, what are, what are some things you notice about when you get to college, like your peers and you, like what, what are some things that are different and what are some things that might be the same? And they say that like, they're like, well, it's weird. I'll go to office hours because obviously I'm gonna go talk with my professors. Like here's this opportunity for like all this extra, you know, it, like time with this professor and I'm the only one there. And they're like, I'm in a class of 400 students and how am I the only one there? And so it's like, there's no wall between like, this is a teacher and this is a student. And so um, I think that that is probably the most visible thing. But then there's also like, there is student work all over the walls here. Like you walk through any wall and you just see, it is like a museum of student learning and it is curated really well. And I think that there is a really high amount of pride from that too. So it's hard to not feel like 
a student belongs, but I think that it just looks different when they walk in for the first like, week or two. They're like, what is this weird planet I'm in? So our last question is one that we ask of all of our guests, mm-hmm. and we're going to ask you to do it in only one or two sentences. Oh, boy. <laughs> if you could change education in some way to make the world a better place, what would you do? I would find a way for communities to value schools and make them the, the centerpiece of a community. And those schools would provide equitable access for all students, no matter their background. Thank you for joining us today. Please visit our website at edforbetterworld.com. That's ed, E-D, the number four, betterworld.com for show notes and to learn more about inviting Mike and I to lead a workshop for your teachers. And don't forget to check the other podcast-related goodies. We want to thank Tina Schuster for being a guest on today's show. Credit for music on the show goes to Midair Machine. Join us next week as we talk with Peter Hill, who is empowering students to make the world more sustainable and fighting to give children voice in international policy. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and that it gave you some new ideas and perspectives. Through education and action, we can create a better world. Until we're together again, continue to dream big. And affect positive change. Bye.